One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith is saved. You go in peace. This is the word of God. All of our glory is like the grass and the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they all fade. But the word of God, it it stands forever. So this morning, this is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible. Um, At least one of those stories that for some reason or another has captured me and seems like I come back to it uh, time and time again, like, like very few other stories in the Bible. It's full of drama. It's full of awkwardness, uh, which I have a little bit of myself. It's full of grace, and it's full of Jesus being Jesus. It's a story that I think in some ways, if I'm honest, it challenges me in my Simonness, my self-righteousness. But it's also a story that peels layers of shame from me. Jesus afflicts the comforted and comforts the afflicted. And I think this is a story that, that really captures both of those, those realities. That Jesus has come to stir up the pop. He's come to heal those who are broken. Uh, this is not uh, your standard three-point sermon. Uh, it's a narrative, I hope, uh, that will speak Jesus into your self-righteousness and shame this morning. Uh, as, we, as we kind of dive in and look at this story, it's a love story. And I hope in some way as we walk away from here this morning, um, you will see Jesus a little bit bigger. Um, and you will see his love for you a little bit better. Um, that, that's my hope. Uh, let me pray and then we'll look at this. Lord God, uh, thank you for this, this opportunity to come together, Lord, um, as your people, as your, as your family, as your sons and daughters. Lord, pray for your word to go forward. You'd hide me that Jesus would be exalted, that the Son of Man would be lifted up, and that um, those who are comforted might have a little affliction, and those who are afflicted, Lord, would have great comfort. We can't do it ourselves, Lord. We need you, and we need your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So kind of the, where we're going to go, we're going to be looking at the background of the story, the two main characters besides Jesus 
in their actions or lack thereof. And then overall, we're going to look at the parable that Jesus tells and, and sort of what that means for us this morning. Um, have, you, have you ever been in a dinner situation that was awkward? Anybody? No, you don't, don't say it out loud, please. Uh, that would be awkward. Uh, think about the rest, like the, the, if you have the ingredients, like what would be like the prime ingredients to make that cake? The awkward dinner cake. You could invite me over, and I guarantee you there will be a lot of awkwardness. Uh, but think about it. Have you ever been in a uh, dinner situation where there's conflict, somebody blows up, and everyone's just kind of like, Ugh. Or uh, somebody showing, someone just bent on showing somebody else up in the middle of the dinner. Maybe somebody just starts weeping at a dinner. That would be awkward just for no reason. It would be really awkward if somebody just started kissing somebody's feet. Don't do that. <laughs> what about people standing behind imagine being at a dinner table I was thinking uh, Kelly and I on our honeymoon uh, we had this guy come up and, and played guitar and we're talking and it was, it was great for like the first song but after like the fourth song you're just like <laughs> leave uh, so we moved tables and he followed us I'm just kidding uh, what about People just sitting back there and watching it. Can you imagine just a, a crowd of people watching you and your friends have dinner and listening to everything you say? How awkward would that be? What about if a prostitute showed up and ate dinner with you and your friends? Would that be awkward? It would probably be a little bit awkward. Well, as we look at the background for our story this morning, a little bit of context. Reclining at the table, uh, to, to us, this means probably little, but to the people back in Jesus' day, it meant a lot. It implied that they're having this this known formal dinner, and this formal dinner would have had certain uh, known rules and expectations, certain boundaries that you wouldn't cross, uh, certain things that would happen. And this was not just true for the people that would attend it, but it was also true of the host. There's certain things you do and certain things you don't do. And we wouldn't understand it if reclining a table that way, uh, but, but there, we would understand that, that that happens in our world, right? There are certain places that if I mention them, you know the unwritten rules or the, the rules or the, the unwritten rules, like what you do at grandma's house. Right? You don't jump on her couch with your shoes on. Or, I don't know. You don't do that anywhere. But you know what I'm saying? Like uh, a formal, southern formal dinner. Uh, there's certain rules that, you know, southern dinner parties, you know, you have to, I, I don't know the rules, so that, I apologize already. <laughs> Somebody please tell them to me sometime. Uh, but, but we know there's, there's, there's sort of unwritten rules kind of world. But, but there was rules at, at this as well. And when it says they're reclining at the table, what, what this kind of looked like, uh, was there were people at the table, the distinguished guests. Jesus obviously was one of those guests. Um, and they would be on the ground, eating on an elbow. I'm not going to actually do it, but their feet facing out. And they would be around the table. Um, and there was a circle around them, the people that were at the table, where the servants could come around and do things like uh, clean the feet of the guests, serve the dinner, etc. But then outside of that would have been another boundary where spectators um, could come and watch the dinner. Because you think on Friday night, uh, back then, there was not football. There wasn't Netflix. I guess this is just something they did on a, on a Friday night. It was part of the culture. Um, and so this was this is sort of the setting. You know, people are there watching. Jesus is laid out. They're all laid out. And part of that also would involve some sort of dialogue. They'd be getting some sort of philosophical discussions and, and so forth. And they would expect for this thing to happen. Um, so look at, let's look at the two characters and their actions. First, let's look at Simon, the host. What do we know about him? He's a religious leader, a Pharisee. He was a religious elite class. He knew everybody in town. 
and they knew him and they probably liked him. He was at church or synagogue a lot. He hosted cool parties. He thought pretty, probably thought pretty highly of himself. Another thing about him and his people, the Pharisees, was they had very specific cleanliness laws, and this would be part of even their dinner, the reclining at the table, their house. They had laws that, for cleanliness that, that are also, I think, kind of hard for us to understand. But imagine this. In their mind, somebody in Simon, the Pharisees' mind, imagine uh, someone unclean coming into their home. It would have been like, imagine you're having a birthday party for your kid, you invite a bunch of people over, got bounce houses or whatever um, and this you see this family you kind of come back in the room and this family had come and uh, the kids are on the bounce houses with all the other kids and the mother looks at you and goes oh man my kids have the worst seeping pink eye ever oh exactly <laughs> oh <laughs> oh they would not be your friends uh, but they're right I mean not only would it be like not okay but now like you're pouring uh, hand sanitizer on everybody's eyes <laughs> don't do that uh, but in some ways right this is uh, this is sort of what it would be like for somebody unclean to show up in at their party contaminated it would be really costly it would be not just gross it would be they would be unclean. You'd be unclean. And for them, it would be even, I think, it would be different in a lot of ways. But let's go back to the feet, this part about feet, uh, which was part of the explanation. Feet in this culture, by the way, uh, they were nasty. Um, they wore chacos all the time. Uh, they didn't have, right, showers and so forth that we have. But it was part of the culture. If you were the host, you would be expected to have your guests' feet cleaned. It was an obligation as a host. You have to do this. This is what you do. You don't not do this. You have to do this. And so what's said by the missing of this is the story opens up uh, in verse 36. It's easy to pass over, right? In relationships, soften not the things you say or, or do. It's not the things you do or say that get you in trouble. It's the things you don't do or don't say that get you in trouble. And they can equally be as upsetting and revealing, right? It's the things you do. Well, here there's an omission, um, and we see Simon's actions or lack thereof. Simon is failing. He, the host has failed to host Jesus. He didn't clean the feet of Jesus. And to admit this courtesy is to admit that he is of an inferior rank, he being Jesus. Strangely, though, he later calls him teacher or rabbi, acknowledging that Jesus is of some sort of rank in this culture. But not only did he not get his feet washed, Jesus got no kiss of greeting. And it's mark, this is a marked sign of contempt. In that day, you would either get a kiss on the cheek or take the hand and kiss the hand. And it was a sign of respect. And it was part of the obligation of the host to respect the guest. Um, Jesus is a rabbi. He has shown no respect. And for us, it's easy to miss. But for this time, it sets the stage for our story. The tone of our story is Jesus is being shown up. Simon the Pharisee is showing Jesus up. So there you have Simon, invites Jesus over, awkward. But then you have this woman. This woman was of the city. Let's, let's try to walk a paragraph in her sandals. This woman of the city. Um, try to imagine what it would have been like for a sinful woman in this time. You know, so she, she's a prostitute. I think everybody, uh, commentators, all agree on that. 
In our world, you could relocate. If this was you and you quit doing that, in our world, you could relocate. Even in our city, I think about how many people you don't, well, maybe some, some apply to all of us, but think about how many people you don't know. You could probably move somewhere outside of Baton Rouge and people just wouldn't even know you anymore. You could start over. At LSU, how many people do you not know if you're a college student? This woman was not only a prostitute, she was a prostitute in a world where everyone knew who she was. Everyone. And everyone knew what she did. Her family, gone. Probably an alien in this land, might have been an alien, uh, a refugee, whatever. She's poor. She's outcast. Um, Total loneliness. No husband who loved her, no future to dream about. She got mocked by people on the streets. It's interesting, I think about this. Um, not only did people not treat her with the dignity that she, uh, with di- any dignity, she was despised publicly. People would literally walk because they didn't want to get unclean on the other side of the street. And those same people that would mock her as they passed by would then pay for her in private. So when she was near people, she was being used and abused. You know, I kind of enter into her world a bit. Wonder what it was like. Wonder what she thought about right before she fell asleep at night. What was it like to be this woman? Again, she has no retirement, no land, no husband, lots of regrets, and boatloads of shame. Kind of side note: shame. I was going to say, spend a second because I feel like part of this woman and part of I think what speaks to me in this passage is uh, is shame. Um, what it would be like to experience. Um, Shame, and then have Jesus come meet you in that. If you don't know what shame is, let me just say a few things about shame. Uh, interestingly, if you guys ever heard of Brene Brown, she's written a bunch of books on shame. Um, it's become a pretty hot topic. It's been called a, like now a cultural epidemic. Shame is shame is. This is Brene Brown. One of one of her definitions. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Guilt and shame are different. Guilt is, I feel bad for something that I did, behavioral. Shame is, I feel bad for who I am. Guilt is sort of like, I, 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 maybe that's how I do it, but guilt is sort of like the strips on the side of the road when you fall, start falling, don't fall asleep while you're driving. But you know when you hit the, you go off the road a little bit, it's like, no, that, that's not the sound, but you know what I mean. Like when you hit those little grooves on the side of the road. And guilt's there to remind us, like, hey, this, this, you're going to get back on track. Guilt's not bad. Shame is a deep-seated condition inside of every one of us that thrives and eat away, eats away at us unless exposed to light and truth in relationship to God and to one another. The three main ingredients of shame, just spoke on this in large group at RUF, um, just real quick. Three of the main ingredients of shame are this... And you can look at Genesis in the fall, and I think it's a great picture of, in Genesis 3 of, of shame being played out with Adam and Eve as soon as they fall in the garden. But, but three of those ingredients are nakedness, shame. It is, um, it's being exposed, afraid of being seen. And of course, for every one of these ingredients, we, we respond awfully not right. We, we cover, we try to cover ourselves. But deep down, I think we all have a fear. What if I'm found out? What if I'm exposed? What if people know me? What do people know what I'm really like? What do people really know what our marriage is like? The second ingredient is rejection. This is shame. I do not fit in. I do not belong here. I'm an outsider looking in. And I know there's places we fit in, but I bet all of us have places in this world where we feel like we, we don't fit in. 
And I could go through a list, but you can think of those yourself. And, and the last ingredient is uncleanness. It's these, this deep down thinking is of, I am unlovable, unpresentable, not worthy, I'm dirty. Brene Brown, uh, after studying shame, seeing thousands of cases, uh, it gets to the conclusion in, in this, her talk, um, this one that's, her talk on shame for TED's talks ends up being like, I think the most viewed TED talk of all time. It's like a 20 minute talk, but she comes to the conclusion that the thing that are, marks all the most free people that she interviewed from shame, the key ingredient that all these people who, who were sort of dealing with shame in a really good way was vulnerability. And she says that what she found was in order to be vulnerable, you have to have worthiness. Worth. You have to know your worth. You have to know what you're worth. And of course, that would, she doesn't go too further with that, but you have to say, well, what, well how do we find our worth? How do I find worthiness? How, do I, how can I deal with my shame? Well, let's go back to this woman and her actions. I think we see this passage as a passage of Jesus doing just that. Verse 37, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Why did she bring this perfume to this meeting? I mean, she would have expected the host to do this to Jesus, right? But she makes up for his failure by using her hair, her tears, to dry his feet. She's there from the beginning of the story. And you know what is fascinating is she cannot stop worshiping. She can't stop. Why? This woman, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And you have to know that this is the Greek past tense. So she, listen, this isn't the first time she's encountered Jesus. She had an encounter with Jesus before this. She came to him, the man who had forgiven and loved her, who had unshamed her. She had come to worship him, to be with him. And I, I look at it as she ran every cultural stop sign because, to get to Jesus. There was no stop sign that was going to stop her to get, from getting there. All she had was her alabaster jar of perfume, which was basically, by the way, her neon lights. The alabaster jar, this was her way of saying, I'm for sale. This was her livelihood. This was her tool of the trade. This is what said, you can buy me. If she loses her jar of perfume, she loses her livelihood and her life, most likely. That's vulnerability. Is there anything more vulnerable than that? She pours out her livelihood because Jesus had become her hope and life and because Jesus had shown her worthiness, her worth, because Jesus had loved her. For Simon, not only is this not a worship service, instead of realizing he has failed to honor his guest and apologizing and calling on his servant to clean his feet, he starts judging Jesus and this woman. You see his heart, um, it's amazing, right? He starts thinking to himself and Jesus hears it. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. Simon's over there just thinking about how messed up this is. And Jesus hears it. And this is what Simon's thinking. Doesn't this, in Greek, what he's saying is, doesn't this, not, not even this man, he says, doesn't this know who is touching him? Does he not know, does this not know that this woman is touching him as a sinful woman? Touching him meaning it's starting uh, a fire sexually is what he implies. It's, doesn't he know that, that, that he's, he's contending her for putting the moves on Jesus and Jesus for not, for just like letting it happen. 
But this woman, is, she's filthy and she's touching him. She's unclean. Far, though, from a sexual advance, she is responding to the grace that has been poured out to her. Let me just ask a quick question. When was the last time you responded to the grace of God that way? With the tangible giving up of something and turning away from something in your life. It's tangible. Simon is angry at her, a sinner, a woman of the city. He doesn't accept her change. And you got to stop there and think, man, now, like, what is her hope in the world? What is this woman's hope in the world? It's the church. It's the people of God now bringing her in. She has nothing. If they didn't acknowledge her as a new person, if they didn't accept her, she would have nowhere to go. Simon was the gatekeeper of the synagogue. She would have nowhere to, to, to go. She would be hopeless in some ways. She, she was still on the communal outside. She, she wasn't let in. And her only hope would be the church to get, to get back up. She needed other people to help her. So Jesus in this parable, tell, Jesus in our text tells us this story, this parable, the parable of two debtors. Neither one can pay the money lender back. Whether you perceive your sins to be great or many, or whether you think that you are not that bad. And this is what Jesus does to us. This is where he afflicts the comforted. We are all leveled. We are all unable. You get that, right? You cannot pay your debts. You are not better than anyone else in this world. Period. Jesus owes you nothing. Zero. Zero. He owes you no more than he owes this woman. Debts and sins are the same word, by the way. But here's the story, right? One owed debts for lack of doing right. I think the other in our story, Simon, right? Uh, Owed debts for living in rebellion, the woman. But both could not repay. The parable, Jesus says, look, if I, this is kind of like, this is the picture, right? If I'm in line with you and you forget your like $4 for your latte frappuccino americano double shot, and I'm behind you, that's not probably a real drink, is it? And I say, hey, I got it. You'd be like, cool, like maybe side hug me, smile. That was nice. Feel good about it. Now imagine this. If you had like $80,000, let's say $81,000 in school loans, and uh, your field's not hiring, you just graduated, you just found out you need, like your car, your transmission blew up, you know, you need some work done on your car, and then you just got diagnosed with something or you got hurt and... It's going to cost you $10,000 out of pocket to pay the medical bills at least. If I say to you, hey, I got this. I'm not just going to help. I'm going to pay for everything completely. All of it. All your future medical bills paid, debts paid. What would your response be? Would it be like, pound? No. Even if you couldn't cry, you might even cry in that moment. (laughs) You'd like, you know, dance, jump, cry, jump at the LSU lakes text message your friends, you'd be smiling for like three weeks straight and everybody would be like, quit smiling. And Jesus trying to say like, the reason you don't, do you see how much I love you? Do you see how much I love you? Do you know how much I've paid? Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Jesus is like, Bingo. You're right. Jesus does something amazing in verse 44, probably one of the most, I think, I mean, 
I'm not going to say the most, but one of the most unshaming, covering, including, non-rejecting, cleaning uh, scenes. And this is the picture in verse 44. Then turning, so, then turning toward the woman. So he's facing the woman, puts his body towards the woman, and he starts talking to Simon. Remember, here's the woman who's lived her life uh, never being stood up for, only been looked at as an object of disgust. Living in shame. People avoided like a plague. Now, not just anybody, but Jesus. You know, the one who calmed the storms and the waves and, you know, created all things. He faces her and he speaks towards Simon. And I think this is as beautiful of a story. That's why it captures me. This is a love that we long for. He stands up to Simon and everyone else out there and he makes this declaration. He isn't just treating this woman kindly. He treats her like he's his daughter, like she's his daughter. He says, not just to her and not just to Simon, but to everyone there, Simon, this woman is mine. She's mine. Simon, you don't get it. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You you didn't even offer me hospitality by giving me water. A little bit of water for my feet. But she, this woman, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But, for, but he who is forgiven little loves little, for she loved much. And this is in response to her forgiveness, not the cause of her forgiveness. Right? This is the reason she does this. The reason she runs all these cultural stop signs is not to get Jesus' love. It's because she's already tasted it. I could see her standing in the back row when Jesus was getting snubbed by Simon and being, oh, no, you didn't. Like, she's ready. She's ready to go. Maybe thinking, should I do this? Maybe not. But just diving at Jesus' feet. I can see her breaking through the visible line and falling at his feet because Jesus loved her so much. She loved Jesus and showed up at his, this place because she, out of faith, trusted that it, he was her rescuer, that, that she, he was her hope. Her worth was found in this Jesus who loved her. Now, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus shows his love when he speaks with authority in front of everyone and says to her, Her sins, I know there are tons of them. I know her. She's not, I mean, she's as naked to me as anybody. I know who she is. And they're forgiven. She's mine. You know, one's love for God does not warrant his forgiveness. This, that's backwards. I'll say it again. This woman who's been forgiven and her response shows the love that she has received from God. This is the parable. Her response out of love, this extravagant, crazy, pouring out her alabaster jar, is a response because she has received a love that has paid all of her debts. And a man who has actually treated her with worth. Many of us have this, I think, backwards. God, please forgive me so I can be loved. God, please forgive me so I can be loved. If this is the way uh, you do it, you will always be trying more to earn his love and you will either burn out or destroy other people. Some of us today are being called, uh, I think, to break our alabaster jars of perfume. What are they? Maybe a bad relationship, maybe inviting someone into your addiction, maybe just talking to people about what's really going on in your house. Um, maybe he's letting people in on where you feel so much shame. And I think, you know, 
Maybe it's going and helping unchain people. I heard a story yesterday of somebody in our church who had told another mother, like, I just did not like the early part of being a mom. You know what? Moms need to hear that. You don't have to love being a mom every day of the week. Dads need to hear that. Your job is not your life. It's not your identity. You're allowed to fail. The depth of understanding his love is the depth of our ability to love. Jesus doesn't love you $5 worth. This is good news. This is the power to begin unshaming you, your family, your son, your daughter, you mother. Your love, defended, adored, spoken for by Jesus, this love causes us to run cultural stop signs on behalf of other people like the sinful woman who need people to protect them. This love causes us not to post things on Facebook that are not helpful. That maybe have people over to our house to dinner to have a conversation instead of posting it on Facebook. Cause us to care about the poor because this is the whole point, right? We are the poor who Jesus has come and paid everything for. Closing story. Um, and uh, got to do a mission trip to Cherokee a few, few years back. And, uh, and there was, we were sitting in the room, student, a bunch of students, and this guy, Sam, came in, um, uh, sitting in the room in Cherokee, North Carolina. This, this man walks, or I think he rolls in, um, in a wheelchair. He's missing a leg. And this woman comes walking in with a, you know, head sort of down and something clearly going on. Two children um, with them. And I didn't know what was going to happen that day, but, but he goes on and the lady in charge says, hey, Sam is a Cherokee. He's going to share with y'all, you know, some of what God's done in his life. And so Sam is sitting there and he starts telling us, you know, the story of God's grace, how God has just paid a lot. And, uh, but then his wife, who comes, come to find out, has cerebral palsy, um, is sitting down and she's, you know, she's kind of shy and uh, you can tell she's, she's been beat up probably a lot in life and had a lot of people look at her weird. Um, but she's sitting down, kind of down, like head kind of down and Sam says, starts talking about his bride in this way that was, I mean, it's just one of those moments. It's like, um, she's sitting there and he's like, let me tell you about my wife. And I, I, I don't remember her name. Um, but he said, let me tell you about my wife. Everyone told her she would never be a mother because of cerebral palsy. And if she was, she couldn't do it. And she'd be the work, like, it's not possible for, like. And then Sam started to just, just talk about, like, I mean, it's sort of like this picture of, like, let me tell you about what kind of mother she is. She, we now have two kids that we've adopted. Not only is she a good mother, I don't know if there's a better mother I've ever seen. And it was as if, no joke, this woman who was down, as he started talking about her, her whole countenance, I mean, her like, her face lifted up and she's smiling and glowing and it was beautiful and it was wonderful and it was a taste of the gospel. And it was a picture to me of this story. And it's a story, it's your story if you're a Christian. He doesn't love you $5 worth. He's paid it all. He, he doesn't come into the room to shame you. He's come to unshame you. And this is good news. Let's pray.